Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Over the, over the last year and a half, I think I can say this and not hurt too many feelings. The, the church has been very distracted. What do I mean by distraction? Well, we've been distracted by the three P's. Want to know what the three P's are? Politics, protests, and pandemic. Uh, those three things have been in the news. They've been on our minds. They've filled our social media feeds. And, and sadly, they have um, taken their fair share of, of toll on the church. And um, there probably needs to be a corporate repentance on behalf of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for allowing herself to get so caught up in these things that are such a, a significant distraction from the task that God has given to us. I don't want to pretend that these things don't matter. Obviously, we know people who've been very sick uh, who still struggle with the effects of catching COVID in the last uh, year and a half. We, um, we know that the political situation in which we find ourselves is toxic, uh, and it's growing less and less conducive to a free church and a free society. We, we know that. Um, and we certainly know that the protests that we've experienced over the last year uh, some have been warranted, some have been just violent mobs, but, uh, but we also understand that those things uh, are important. But I do want to say that those things are not the main thing uh, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things are not the things in which our focus should be driven and geared as the church. Obviously, we believe that the best arrangement for the spread of the gospel is a free church and a free nation. Amen? Uh, that's the best arrangement, and there have been very few societies in the course of the last 2,000 years that have really experienced a free church and a free society. So God has blessed us in this land for 200 years to have a free church and a free society, and we certainly understand that politics, protests, and pandemic have taken a very serious toll on the ability of a free church to function in a free society. We've seen increasingly aggressive efforts to strip the church of her freedoms. We have seen in nations uh, like Canada where pastors have been arrested for choosing to meet in spite of government lockdown measures. At the same time, we've seen where personal liberties have been uh, eroded as well, and we have every reason to think that that's probably a trend that's going to continue. Well, what have these distractions, what have they, what have they done? From a church standpoint, when the pandemic started, the Lord really impressed upon me a need to define what it means to be part of the kingdom. And we spent some time in the Sermon on the Mount defining what clear citizenship, what true citizenship looks like in God's kingdom, particularly in light of the somewhat suspect and tenuous nature of our earthly citizenship. So we spent a big part of the uh, pandemic looking at the Sermon on the Mount in light of an increasingly nonsensical culture. It's nonsensical. I mean, you can't watch the news and think, man, this, this is really rational and well-rounded and it just makes sense. People have lost their ever-loving minds. And in light of the fact that people are absolutely going bonkers, I felt that it was essential that we hear from God what wisdom has to say to this absolutely crazy world and how we as the people of God should relate to it, which is why we spent time in Proverbs. Well, now the church is regathered. The restrictions have generally been lifted. We meet without, um, without too many fears. We had Bible school last week, and, uh, and we're past our 48-hour window, so we're not worried about uh, contact tracing anybody from Bible school last week, so we're thankful for that. But now that we've regathered, we, we have a sense of how things have sort of settled out, right? 
We sadly know we've lost people in our churches. We've lost people physically uh, because of death. We also know we've lost people who've just fallen off the truck. Early in the pandemic, we were warned by the experts, whoever are experts in pandemic. The last pandemic we had was 1918, so there wasn't a lot of eyewitnesses roaming around to pandemics. But we have experts who know everything, right? They warned us that there would be some people who would never darken the doors of church again. And they told us who those people were. They were the people who were already kind of on the fence. They were the people who weren't really Christians. They just went to church because it felt good, felt like they were supposed to. That's how you be a good person as you go to church. And so we, gave, we took a year and we said, hey, you people don't have to come to church anymore. You don't have to come to church. We're going to send it to your living room. You can watch from the couch. And man, if everybody I saw in the community said, I'm watching from home, preacher, if they were all watching from home, we would be the number one rated television program in the Chattanooga area. Um, I've been lied to once or twice, I suspect. Um, however, we do know that there's people who have um, who've left, and they're not going to church anywhere. They're sitting at home, or they're out doing whatever they've done for the last year on Sundays. Our church is no exception to that. I've talked with many pastors, and that's the shared sense among pastors, is that there's a lot of people that used to come to church and were rock solid in the church who just aren't here anymore. And we know that. We, 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 we feel that. We grieve that on Sunday mornings when we gather and we don't see their faces. Many of you have asked the question, where, where's so-and-so? Well, the answer is we, we're not sure, but they're not here. So in this season of regathering, I feel like one of the most important things we can do is make sure that we're all really on the same page. Because, man, the pages have been flying over the last year and a half. So what is the church? What's her main function? What is our role as individual participants in the church? And so with that sort of, uh, sort of game plan in mind, it's, I felt like it was important for us to, as, as kind of the first series after the, the regathering has taken place, that we spend some time in the book of Acts. And so for the foreseeable future, Luke's second book is going to be our preaching home. Jesus' last words to his disciples is known as the Great Commission. But we know that the Great Commission isn't simply for the disciples. So we find ourselves, as Jesus' followers, we've been commissioned to bear witness about Jesus. So let's jump into the first chapter of the book of Acts to learn about the commission we've received and get some details about the specific nature of our ongoing mission. So this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 1. I would encourage you to stand as we read these words together in Acts chapter 1. We've not had an official scripture reading for a while because of Proverbs, but we will restart that today. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth." 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for this incredible story that we're about to unfold in the book of Acts that is our story. Here we are as New Testament Christians separated by an ocean from the events of this book, but we're here because of the events that take place, and our commission is the same as their commission. Our purpose is the same as theirs. Would we be faithful to unpack it? Would we we be faithful to understand it? And would our understanding uh, drive us into greater acts of service for your kingdom and for your name? Uh, God, bless us now as we unpack these words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. As we consider the book of Acts, it's, it's fairly common knowledge about who wrote the book and the, the context that surrounds it. You can get this at the introduction to any Bible. A study Bible goes into even more details, but it's, it's Luke. and Luke is a researcher. Luke is a, a physician. But we also understand that Luke is part of the story. Luke's not just watching from afar, writing these events down. Luke is actually in the story. Luke is is there with Paul on some of his journeys. And so he writes this letter. He introduces it uh, uh, to a man named Theophilus. That's an interesting name. I once heard a story of of a couple who had a baby, and the baby wasn't the prettiest baby that anyone had ever seen. And the pastor went to go visit the child and said, uh, Pastor, we don't have a name. What do you think we should name it? We want a biblical name. And he looked at him. He said, I think you should name it Theophilus. They said, Theophilus? What a strange name. He said, that's Theophilus' baby I've ever seen. Uh, (laughs) We're not sure if Theophilus was a real name. Uh, It literally means friend of God. And so if he is a real name, he's got a, if it's a real guy, he's got a cool name, right? I mean, I'd love to be named Theophilus, not like the baby, but like the recipient of the book of Acts. So maybe Luke made up a name to protect his original recipient's real name. If that's the case, that's okay. It doesn't affect the outcome of the story at all. What is most interesting about this is that Luke, in the process of writing this, is doing exactly what he is supposed to do. He is bearing witness to the truth. He's telling others what he has seen, what he's experienced, what he's recorded. He gives us facts and data because he's a doctor and he's good at that. He, he gives us info about the time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. He's the only biblical writer who took count of the days. He's the one who tells us here that Jesus was around for 40 days in between those two monumental events. Luke, in his story here, does something that we are tremendous beneficiaries of. He bridges the gap for us between the gospel writers and the epistles. Do we have to have the book of Acts to have the gospel? Not, no. Uh, but he bridges the gap. And what's interesting is if you do a chronological reading of the New Testament, you can actually read where the letters sort of fall into the story of the book of Acts. It's a really compelling story to, or a compelling way to read that. 
And so in writing this book, though, Luke does something that's important for us. He helps us to understand why the gospel was more than just a flare-up of cultish religious zeal. It wasn't uncommon in that day for charismatic leaders to rise up and to, to stir up people, to, to, to create sort of cultish sort of religions. And so Christianity could have gone that way as well if it weren't for the presence of God the Holy Spirit leading and guiding and directing. And so Luke helps us to see that. It's officially titled The Acts of the Apostles, but you might even be able to title it The Acts of the Holy Spirit as it seeks to lay out the, 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 the movement of the Holy Spirit amongst the first generation of believers. And so what we understand is that there was a movement beginning, and it was a mission that was underway. And what's so incredible to stop and think about and reflect upon is that we are still part of that mission. That what has began here in this first chapter, you and I are still part of daily as citizens of God's kingdom, as called to be on mission for Christ. We are still part of this work that began here in the book of Acts. Luke also makes it very clear that this movement is not a political movement. If you look at verse 6, you'll see that the disciples are meeting with Jesus. They say, when he had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Isn't this something they're still thinking about politics? Is this the time that Rome gets kicked out and we're our independent nation and, and we get to secede from the Roman Empire? Is this when this finally happens? They're thinking about politics. They're thinking about earthly rule. That's not what this is about. We've experienced as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ over and over again in history when our mission is too closely aligned with political movements, we tend to struggle. It seems that the church's greatest victories come when the church is, in, is, is, on the, uh, is on the defense, when the church is being pushed against, when the church is being persecuted. It's those moments when the church really does thrive. There's an old saying that the, that the seed of the church is planted by the blood of the martyrs. That the church is the greatest when the church is at her most defensive. Isn't that something? The disciples were thinking about politics and power. And, and man, what a shot in the arm that would have been. For your ruler, for the person who said he's the king of the Jews, who was crucified, for him to, to stand up and say, no, I'm very much alive. What a shot in the arm for a political movement. To say, I'm here to, to be the king. and to, uh, Jesus could have easily called together legions of, of, of rebels to fight against the Roman Empire if that had been his calling and his purpose. All he had to do was show up alive. And man, people would have followed and, and, and went to war for Jesus. But that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus had a different type of power involved. Jesus wasn't thinking about political power. Jesus wasn't thinking about military power. Jesus was thinking about... A kind of power that the disciples weren't even really pondering. As I said, Luke was a researcher. And as any good researcher will tell you, if you're going to write a paper, a research paper, one of the things you've got to have in any serious piece of writing is a thesis. If you've been to any sort of college, you know how important that thesis statement is. And Luke, being a researcher, does not disappoint. And he gives us his thesis statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's been memorized and meditated upon. Listen to it again. He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. What we see in this thesis statement is that it is the framework on which the entire book is built. And so this morning, in the rest of our time, I want to spend this time unpacking this thesis statement and hopefully brings to light some things that we have uh, perhaps overlooked along the way. 
So Jesus calls us to be his witnesses. He tells us there is a job for us to do. And so what is the scope of this task that he has given to us? Jesus tells us uh, through his disciples that they will bear witness for him in a pattern of expanding influence. He begins with Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so it, it's, it, it represents a sort of concentric circle almost. That the, 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 the focal point of that first mission was there in Jerusalem, but it would expand over the course of time based on geographic proximity. And people have used this in different ways. Jerusalem was the center of the bullseye, and the ends of the earth was, in the book of Acts, Rome. And this is the pattern that Acts follows. The story begins in Jerusalem until the disciples are scattered in Acts chapter 8. They're scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Philip is sent to Samaria where the gospel is received there. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, we get a sense that, the, that it's not going to take long for the gospel to, to break out of, of the immediate vicinity of Israel as we see Philip uh, having a, a conversation, a spiritual conversation with an Ethiopian man who's ultimately converted and takes the gospel to Africa. I, I mean, we're only eight chapters in and the gospel's already left Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and it's on its way to Africa on the, on the back of an Ethiopian chariot. It's not taking long at all for the gospel to spread because that's what happens when you set something afire in good tender, right? It'll spread quickly. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to do much. You set a fire in something that'll burn, it'll burn quick. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts. For a while, even Southern Baptist churches, we were encouraged to take the Acts 1-8 challenge. If you've been around Southern Baptist churches, you remember the emphasis on the Acts 1-8 challenge. We were supposed to use that pattern as a, as a means of structuring our missions engagement with an emphasis on our community, our immediate region, our nation, and our world. And I remember being in a small church at the time and thinking, man, how does a church our size, we can barely reach our own backyard. How are we going to do this? And I remember the discouragement of, of that at the time. Again, there's nothing wrong with using that as a pattern to develop a church's strategy. But there's a couple of things that Acts 1-8 is communicating that I don't want us to overlook because we're so focused on the geography. I want to look at two things briefly this morning that, that we tend to miss because we focus on the geography. The first thing is this. Your neighbors are someone else's uttermost. Your neighbors are someone else's uttermost. You know, we sit here, and if we try to, try to you know, apples to, apples to apples comparison here, you know, our Jerusalem is, is the big city of Flintstone, right? We might say Walker County. We might expand that a little bit, that, that you get really ambitious. We might say Fort O and Lookout Mountain and Chattanooga. All this is part of our Jerusalem, our immediate context. If we wanted to, to do, a, we wanted to go work at a soup kitchen in Chattanooga, we wouldn't have to work hard to do that. we just get together, meet, get up there about 11 o'clock and serve soup. We wouldn't have to plan, wouldn't have to travel, wouldn't be a big deal. We think about Samaria. Samaria would be like Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, that place a little bit further away, but, but, but still within, within reach. You get into to, into the earth, though, and that's where you got to get on a plane to go to. And so that's the geographic region. But we need to remember that the Great Commission has a global perspective, not a nationalistic perspective. We tend to Americanize things. Meaning we read this and we think that this was given only to us as American Christians. That's not the case. That's not the case at all. This was given to the church, not this church. 
And so the church exists on lots of different continents. The church exists in China. The church exists in Europe. The church exists in Flintstone, Georgia. The church exists in Canada. The church exists in South Africa. The church, the, the church exists in Brazil. And all these people from all these different cultures are reading Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and they're all thinking, we're the end of the earth for somebody in Brazil. We're the ends of the earth from somebody in Europe. And so someone, a European Christian who says, I want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, what are, you going to do when a, what are you going to do when a Brazilian knocks on your door one day and says, I'm here from Brazil, I want to share the gospel with you? That's the reality. That's the, that's the, that's the truth here. We need to not read this from an American standpoint. Acts 1-8 was given to the church, not to a nation. But sometimes, I know this will come as a shock, Americans can have kind of a self-centeredness where we think we're the only people in the room. I'm so thankful the church is bigger than my country. I'm so thankful that when my nation goes off the rails, that I'm part of something that's much greater than my nation, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love my country, don't get me wrong. I'm a proud citizen. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. I pay my taxes, I vote, I do all the things. But I'm so thankful that that nations rise and fall, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will go on forever. We need to keep that in mind. We get so focused and wrapped up in what's going on in the nation that we forget the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we read our Bibles like that too. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 applies to the underground house church in China just like it applies to the mega mission sending church in the United States. I first began to realize this back when I was in seminary. I had an opportunity to do a winter term in Kingston, Jamaica at the Caribbean Graduate School of Theology. That was an eye-opening season for me. First time I'd ever been out of the country, and uh, it, was a, it was a great, great time that I had there. But one of the things I'll never forget when we were there in Kingston is that we got to participate in a commissioning service for some students that the seminary was getting ready to send to Cuba to do mission work. And this was 20 years ago. And so as an American, the thought of going to Cuba for mission work, that sounded like you had to have like a double O status in the, in, you know, in the Secret Service to be able to get in there. You didn't go to Cuba for anything. You know, Cuba was off limits. And so when I was in Kingston, and the seminary there in Kingston is celebrating sending these Jamaican students to go to Cuba to do mission work, my mind was absolutely blown. Because one of my Jamaican friends there reminded me that though Cubans didn't like Americans, they didn't really have a problem at all with Jamaicans coming over and hanging out and spending time with them. And so those Jamaican students were able to go somewhere that I would have never been allowed to go. One time I tried to go on a, a trip to a, a North African country. Uh, me and a, a colleague at church, we were trying to go in and, and do a pastor's conference for a missionary friend in a North African country. And I had to go through the internet and try to purge myself from the internet so that I could, I could try to get a visa to be able to go into this country. And there was still stuff on the internet I couldn't get rid of. And so I couldn't get a visa to go in. It had been like that to go to Cuba. You just can't go in. But man, those Jamaicans could. They could go in with no problem. It was easy for them. They were seen as tourists. You see, the Great Commission, listen to me, is not about the American church evangelizing the world. The Great Commission is about the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ making disciples of all nations. When it comes to making disciples, if it's a biblical church, I don't care what country it started in. If it affirms the Bible as the inerrant authoritative word of God, it doesn't matter where it came from or what country started it. 
What matters is that it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ making disciples to the ends of the earth. And we as an American church in Flintstone, Georgia, ought to be happy to participate and partner with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the move, regardless of where it is. You know, sometimes... With that in mind, the most effective thing we can do is not send a team to a country to build houses or dig wells. I've done a lot of mission trips where I've gone to countries that don't have much, and I've painted a lot of things. Uh, We spent a lot of time in Jamaica, and I painted a lot of houses and a lot of churches. And and somebody asked me, I said, Pastor, what would you take away? I said, well, we put a lot of Jamaican painters out of business because they can't compete with free they can't compete with free white, free white labor coming from America to paint their churches. We put, I mean, there were men sitting around looking for work to do, and we're all sitting there painting. How much more effective would it have been for us to empower that church to hire those men to paint their church and they, they, them share the gospel with those men? Sometimes the most effective thing we can do is to not go and build houses, dig wells, or paint walls, but to work to build strong, healthy churches in countries that need houses built and wells dug. One of the things I love about our partners here is that our partners here in foreign countries are so focused on local church ministry that it's not about Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church showing up and trying to do the work. It's about us partnering and connecting with local churches to let local churches be able to do the work in the countries in which they serve. Sometimes I fear that we've also turned the Great Commission into spiritual tourism, where we go to stamp our passports, but we never make much more of a difference than just having a passport stamp and an expensive airline ticket. I'm not suggesting that we don't send mission teams to other places, but I firmly do believe that the Great Commission is given to the church, not a church. And God allows us as individuals the opportunity to participate, and that's where context always matters, whether we're talking about the Bible or we're talking about missions. Many years ago, I was involved in a partnership with a church planning organization in central Mexico. It was a great place to go, and, and we were working. I remember when we first hooked up with these folks, that they, were, they told us they were doing ministry among the Aztecs. I said, Aztecs? I thought they were, you know, I thought, you know, one of these Pizarros or Spanish, uh, you know, Coronados or somebody out, you know, did away with all the Aztecs. You know, we brought some disease and wiped out the Aztecs. And these guys, these, these, this people group is still there. And so we were able to go and, and minister to this people group. And again, context matters. The church planning group found that white people drew a crowd. And so our whole purpose was to be, come look at the white people in the village square. And you know what? White people in the village square drew a group of folks. And I'll never forget, we were in this little village called Teopango. And the leader that we were working with, he looked at me and he said, share the gospel. So we were in the town square. They were in the middle of having this, this festival. He said, share the gospel. And I said, right here? He said, right here, share the gospel. And so he handed me a microphone. They set up a PA system. And right there in the town square of Teopango, I began to share the gospel. And those people didn't speak English. And nobody who spoke English spoke Nahuatl, the native tongue. And so we had to translate it twice. It had to go from English to Spanish and then Spanish to their native tongue. So that's really hard to preach when you've got to stop every four words to allow it to be translated two times. But there's a white person shouting in the middle of the town square and people showed up to hear. And so I shared the gospel in as short and concise way as I could. And then the, guy, the, the church planner in charge took the microphone and he offered a simple invitation and people all over the place raised their hands. And I looked at my translator and I said, what's going on? He said, all these people want to get saved. I said, what? He said, all these people heard the gospel and they want to get saved. There were, there were dozens. I said, well, now what? 
And that church planning organization had church folks who were there watching. And for all those people who raised their hands, they made a beeline to them. And they grabbed them and they made sure that every one of those people was made contact with. So that all those people who raised their hands weren't just left to figure it out on their own. They were connected right away with the Bible-believing church. And so for me, my whole role was being a white man sharing the gospel. And in that time, in that place, in that context, it really worked. It doesn't work in every context. It doesn't work all the time. That day, my role was simply to bear witness, and the local church was there to finish the job. That's the way it ought to happen. So we understand that, the, that, that our neighbors are somebody else's uttermost. So we need to care about our neighbors as much as we care about the people in Uganda or wherever our partners might lie. The second thing I want to make sure we understand is this. The Great Commission's not concerned about man-made barriers. Don't miss this. The third circle in the target that Jesus described was Samaria. You've heard in sermons before. You've heard in your own personal Bible study that Jews and Samaritans didn't gee and haul very well. There was a lot of animosity, a lot of racism, a lot of, a lot of back and forth between Jews and Samaritans. There were cultural differences, religious differences. But understand this, they were not excluded from the mission because of the racial differences between them and the Jews. There are lots of opinions about why this is the case, but we are living in a time where there are a lot of different voices working overtime to stir sentiments of racial animosity. There are lots of people who are trying to stir up trouble and stir up controversy, and I want you to hear me very clearly on this church. The Great Commission does not allow for racism. Does not allow it. The Great Commission doesn't permit it. The Great Commission is absolutely colorblind. If a Jew can go to Samaria and share the gospel with a Samaritan, if a Jew can go and preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch, the Great Commission is colorblind. No nation is excluded. No color is exempt. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that when we meet, when we meet in heaven, there are going to be people there from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they're all going to be worshiping the lamb on the throne. And it's going to be white. It's going to be black. It's going to be brown. It's going to be every color in between. All this stuff going on today that's trying to stir up fighting between people. The church needs to be looking at folks and say, I don't care what color you are. There's no such thing as race. The only race that exists is the human race. And it doesn't matter what color your skin is because we all are created in the image and likeness of God and we all share one thing in common and that is that we are sinners who are desperately in need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the church's mission. That is the church's task. We ought not have anything to do with all the racist stuff that's going on today. We ought to be 100 miles away from it because our task is greater than that. I once met somebody. <laughs> I've never been so mad at a church person than I was this day. I've met somebody who said they'd never support work in Central America or Mexico. They'd never support missionaries in Central America or Mexico because of all those illegal aliens trying to cross the border. I was so angry. Again, it's okay to have strong political opinions. It's okay to have opinions about border integrity and immigration regulation. It's hard to have a nation if you don't have borders. It's fair. But condemning an entire nation to go to hell because of political opinions? Are we really sure that's going to stand up on the day of judgment? We really sure that's going to hold water when we stand before the Lord and he says, why don't you love people that were brown skin? Well, because they tried to get into my country. 
God help us on that day. God help us on that day. So sure, it may be geographic, but I think there's more to Acts 1-8 than just the geography. Secondly, I want us to look at the participants this morning. Consider the title that Jesus gives his followers, my witnesses. That word witness is where we get our English word martyr from. That ought to tell us something about the cost of following Jesus. If the primary word used to describe us is where we get martyr from. We are to be witnesses for Christ. In the book of Acts, the word witness occurs no less than 39 times. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of the facts. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts chapter 10, verse 39, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Acts twenty-two fifteen. you will be his witnesses to all men of what you have seen and heard. The commission is given to the church, but it is carried out by individual participants. That's us. What makes a good witness? A good witness needs to have the truth, the logos. You've had some people come to your door before, I'm sure. Maybe Saturday morning, some ladies dressed nicely, getting out of a car, ready to come knock on your door. Maybe you've had some couple of young men stand on your doorstep wearing white shirts, dark ties, and a black name tag. You've had witnesses come to your door before. They want to talk to you about their Lord. For that matter, there's all kinds of people bearing witness today about all kinds of nonsense. But a good witness needs to know the truth. A good witness needs to know what he believes and why he believes it. A good witness needs to know what he's witnessing for. We need the Logos, the Word. If you don't know the truth, then knock the dust off this book and get into it because it contains the words of life. Some of us are one hard question away from seeing our faith fall apart because we don't know the answer. Some of us are absolutely terrified to talk to anybody about Jesus because we're afraid they're going to stump us. Or because we're afraid we're going to say something incorrect. You know, the good news is, is, is even if you say something incorrect, I still trust God enough to think that even if you say something incorrect, it's going to be all right. If God's working in somebody's heart, that even if you stumble over your speech... I think the Lord can, can, can work and do miracles. He, he, he had people hear their, 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 the gospel in their own language. I think he can deal with our missteps every once in a while. And so God has given us this great textbook. He's given us permission for all our tests to be open book tests. Secondly, a, a good witness, his inner person needs to match his confession. That's his ethos. You can have the truth, but if your heart and your head are not on the same page, then you are in serious trouble. Our lives must bear witness to the truth that we claim to believe. The number one reason that people don't come to our churches is because our logos and our ethos do not match. What we say we believe and what, how we act like we believe don't line up with one another. We say one thing, we live another, and we behave as if this disconnect is acceptable. And it's not. Thirdly, a witness needs to be zealous. That's our pathos. Need to be passionate. How did you ever get over what the Lord did in your life? Think for a moment the day that you put your faith and trust in Christ. There was a moment when it clicked. And that young man I was talking to Thursday night at, or yeah, Thursday night at Bible school, it clicked with him. He he had it figured out. Got a lot to learn, but man, he he knew what had happened in his life. Think about when you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a day that was. Your sins were forgiven. 
You were adopted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your life was changed forever and ever. Nothing that good has ever happened to you before. What a day. Uh, There's no prize anyone could give you. There's no lottery anyone could pay you. There is nothing so good as the day that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. How do we ever get over that? How does that ever wear off? I mean, I think about some of the things, big things that could happen in my life. And that would, be, that would change the direction of my life. If somebody came up and wrote you a check to pay your mortgage for the rest of your life, that's a, that's a, a life-altering moment, right? If, if old Pat, or what's-his-face with the Publishers Clearinghouse, rolled, I almost said Pat Sajak, that's Will of Fortune. Uh, Ed McMahon, is he dead? He's probably dead. Uh, if he showed up, you really would have your life changed. But whoever's in charge of Publishers Clearinghouse... If he showed up at your house and handed you a million-dollar check, that's a life-altering event. Your life will never be the same. You walk out here in the parking lot and you find a lottery ticket that's got the Powerball numbers on it, why it's in a Baptist church parking lot, I don't know. But it serves you right for losing it. You find that winning Powerball, your life is changed forever. Maybe not for the good. Doesn't compare to what Jesus did in your heart. Doesn't compare. Doesn't compare. Because one day, that lottery is going to be left on the ground while you're in the grave. One day, that house is going to fall down. One day, all those things are not going to matter. But what is going to matter is what happens to you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And there's only one thing in this life that will make that impact. And it's what have you done with Jesus? How can you ever get over that? Why are we, when our feet hit the floor in the morning, when we wake up, why are we giddy? Lord, you saved me. We walk into church on Sunday morning. We get to worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords, because he saved us, because he redeemed us, because he rescued us. Foster, why aren't we all dancing on Sunday morning when we realize what Jesus did in our heart? Why? How do we ever get over this? A witness needs to be passionate, ought to have pathos. Look at the disciples in the book of Acts. Without ever backing down, they faced accusers, they faced execution, they faced authorities, they never flinched, they never backed down, they never silenced, and even when they were persecuted for the name of Jesus, they walked away with a spring in their step because they'd been counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. How dare us sit here and fuss about the stuff we fuss about? When George Whitfield was preaching at 5 o'clock in the morning in Edinburgh, Scotland, there was a man on his way to church to hear him. He ran into the Scottish philosopher and skeptic David Hume. He was shocked to see David Hume going to hear Whitfield. He said, why in the world are you going to hear Whitfield? He says, I didn't think you believed the gospel. <laughs> Hume said, I don't. But he does. Passion. 
Finally, consider the power supply for the Great Commission. Jesus said, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. I know that Baptists get a little nervous when we start talking about the third person of the Trinity. I know that makes us a little uncomfortable. But Jesus said we would receive power. In Matthew's Great Commission, he sends us out by his authority to make disciples. Who in the world are we to sit here and talk about what we can't do? We need to be talking about what we can do. We read the stories of these early church folks who faced persecution with boldness and courage. These guys were cowards. Not, not even years before this stuff happened. And something transpired in their life that these men went from being cowards to being courageous men full of, full of the Holy Spirit. That's spirit power. Sitting there in stocks, jailed, singing hymns. We'd be sitting there saying, this was unjust. <laughs> this isn't fair. I'm triggered. And they're singing hymns to the glory of God. That is spirit power. It's not political power. We spend a lot of time fighting about politics, but let us be very clear, our politics aren't saving anybody. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's nothing wrong with having political opinions and preferences. There's nothing wrong with having strong feelings about candidates. I share those strong feelings. But men and women, we are witnesses for Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are not called to be witnesses for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or this candidate or that candidate. We are called to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our power source is not in a ballot box. Our power source is in God the Holy Spirit. If you are more motivated by a politician than you are by Jesus, then you've wandered into a gross form of idolatry. It's got no power to save. It's got no power to change lives. It's got no power to rescue people from darkness and into light. The book of Acts is about a church that's excited and growing and, and motivated. And in regard to that, nothing at all has changed. Is the mission the same? Absolutely. Is the identity the same? We're still witnesses. Is the power supply the same? Better believe it. The same Holy Spirit that empowered those men to face the things that they faced is the same one that lives inside you and lives inside me. The only thing that's changed over the course of the last 2,000 years is that we've gotten a lot closer to the fulfillment of these last two verses in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. What a sight that must have been. Y'all ever done that trick on somebody where you stand and you look up at, at the ceiling? And everybody comes around you and they all stand. They start looking up at the ceiling wondering what you're looking at. That's what the disciples must have been doing. As Jesus was pulled up into heaven and they're sitting there watching. I can't imagine the feeling that they experienced in that day. But suddenly those two angels came and stood by him and said, What you waiting for? That Jesus that you just watched get taken away? He's coming back in the same way. 
I don't know we say this enough. We're up against the clock every single day. Because every day that we move forward in the timeline, we get closer and closer to the day that this Jesus who was taken up from you will come again the same way in which you saw him go. And the story of Acts directly leads to us, which leaves us confronted with this question. Do we share the same zeal? Do we share the same passion, the same pathos? Are we willing to work? Are we willing to bear witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in our day-to-day life? That's the question that we're left with. How do you answer it today? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, for the clear command of Scripture. We are witnesses, each one of us, who are in Christ. And so, Lord, I would pray today that you would remind us of the day that we gave our life to Jesus, every one of us who are in Christ today, that we would be reminded of that great and glorious day in which we said yes to you and no to sin, in which we turned our lives, our, our gaze upon you. Lord, over the course of our lives, we get busy and we get distracted and all sorts of other things get in the way. But in this moment, in this time, would you give us a clear reminder of what it was like the day that we said yes to Christ? And may that, be, that, that spirit be rekindled within us. We've learned so much since that day. We've learned so much of your word. We've learned so much of what it means to follow you. So if I could combine what I now know with what I, what I felt then, man, there's no stopping us. And so, God, I pray that you might revive us, restore unto us, as David said, the joy of our salvation. May we be captivated by your spirit to be witnesses for you. Lord, I pray that if there's any here today that, Lord, you know in their heart that they're not followers of Christ. They know that they need to make a decision to to walk with you, and for whatever reason they put it off. Lord, today they can know the joy of salvation, the joy of what it means to follow Christ. Today can be the day that they say yes to you. In these next few moments, would they have the the boldness and the courage to look deep in their own heart and say they want to follow Jesus more than their own selves? Lord, may we be a church on fire and may it be contagious and spread through our community and our neighborhood. And Lord, if you lead us to the ends of the earth, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.